as a QR code for the sermon notes. Sorry, I heard the printer running, and I was trying to figure out why. Somebody's printing something, that's why. Not me, though. <laughs> All right, turn to Revelation, chapter 2, we're starting in verse 8. Hope in persecution. Where to find hope in persecution? We're starting in Revelation, chapter 2, verse 8. And I would, uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab the Bible in front of the pew and use that. Uh, there will be it on the slide, but then I will be talking about several parts of the passage, and you're going to want to refer back to the verse, because uh, I've got a lot of content on each verse, and the verse won't be on the screen uh, as I'm talking. So it might be nice to have that Bible uh, verse in uh, front of you. Uh, I believe it was Ginger is uh, credited with the beautiful artwork uh, that we have uh, tonight. So she's uh, doing a great job. Um, all right. So persecution is our topic, and, and we're going to talk about how to find hope in persecution tonight. Um, but in 2022, an advocacy group opened up said that at least 300, $360 360 million, that's a really big number, Christians experience high levels of persecution and dis discrimin uh, sorry, discrimination. This was up 20 million higher than 2021. It's pretty sobering statistic. 360 million Christians today, act well in 2022, it's trending up, all persecuted for their faith. We are talking today about the church of Smyrna, and the church of Smyrna is persecuted. And we might ask ourselves, where is hope? Where is hope for them? Where is hope for us in our trial, our tribulation? How do we process our own trials? How do they process their trials? We'll bring some insight by the words of Jesus into those questions today. Revelation 2.8 says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. To the church of Smyrna. Church in Smyrna. Smyrna is, mo is modern day Izmir in Turkey. You see a map there. I doubt you could read actually the names of those cities. That's pretty small. But Smyrna is 
the sword died up, which I'm not even sure you can see there. That's not really working out too well. Well, it's a wealthy port north of Ephesus, and it is devoted to many gods, but especially to the emperors as gods. They worshipped the emperors as gods, had a temple to them and everything in their city. The imperial cult, which is worshiping the emperors as gods, permeated virtually every aspect of city and often even village life in Asia Minor. So that individuals could not aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. They had to say, Caesar is Lord. They had to sacrifice animals to Caesar. Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions, and sometimes even visitors and foreigners were invited to do so. Persecution. It was required. A Christian would not say Caesar is Lord. Who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord, right? All right. Polycarp, anybody know that name? Ever heard of that? Polycarp is a disciple of John, and John the Apostle wrote Revelation, okay? Polycarp is the pastor at Smyrna. Well, John is writing one of the seven churches that John is writing. I'm going to read the account of Polycarp's, not the whole account, but sections of the account of Polycarp's martyrdom. This happened, this account was recorded 75 years after Revelation was written. So that's not very long. Upon Polycarp's interest into the arena, the Colosseum arena, all seating around, everybody's watching this. A voice from heaven, be brave, Polycarp, act like a man. No one saw the speaker, but the Christians who were present heard the voice. Finally, when he was brought forward, the council asked him if he were Polycarp. When he admitted it, he tried to persuade him to deny the faith, saying, have regard for your age. He's very old by this time. And other suggestions such as they usually make. Swear by the honor of Caesar. Change your mind and say, away with the atheist. Then Polycarp, with solemn countenance, gazed on the whole crowd of lawless pagans in the stadium waved his hands at them and groaned, looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. <laughs> As the proconsul urged him and said, take the oath and I release you, revile Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So he put his hands, uh, we're skipping ahead here, but Polycarp put his hands behind his back and was bound like a ram marked for sacrifice out of a great flock on a holocaust prepared and acceptable to God. And he looked up to heaven and he said, Lord God Almighty, Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, God of the angels and powers of the whole creation, of the whole race of righteous who live in thy sight. I bless thee for having made me worthy of this day and hour. I bless you because I have a part along with the martyrs in the chalice of your Messiah unto the resurrection of eternal life. Resurrection both of soul and body in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice among those who are in your presence. And as thou hast prepared and foretold and fulfilled God who art faithful and true. For this, and for all the benefits, I praise thee. I praise you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be to you, with him, and the Holy Spirit, glory, now and for all ages to come. Amen. And then they burned him at the stake. And I left that part out because it was too graphic for mixed audiences. This is the Church of Smona's reaction to persecution. Polycarp isn't saying, why me? He isn't saying, what are you doing? He's saying, what an honor. What a privilege it is to suffer for my Lord. To share in his sufferings. And for my sufferings, to proclaim the gospel. As Christ's sufferings is the gospel. Where is hope? Hope is in Jesus. Hope is in Jesus walking in the suffering. Hope is in the fact that our suffering proclaims the gospel to those around us.
Revelation 2.8, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Whose words are they? Whose words are these? They're Jesus' words, aren't they? And they're spoken by the Spirit of God to our hearts. And we'll have at the end to make sure we listen, that we hear. He who has ears, everybody have any ears? I got ears, right? You got ears? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, right? Jesus, the first and the last. He's Yahweh embodied. He's the first and the last. There's nothing beyond him. That's that's his idea. He's he's eternity encompassed. He he encompasses everything. No trial or poverty. It's not behind him. What you're going through right now is not beyond him. Nothing is beyond our Jesus. He's the first and the last. He died. And came to life. Resurrection power. Resurrection power. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The promise of the resurrection. This life is not all there is. We have the promise of the next life for those who believe in Jesus because he died and he is alive forevermore. There's a reason he's telling the church of Smyrna this. Because the church of Smyrna needs hope. Hope in their trials. Hope to know that it is not for naught. Hope to know that Jesus knows them, that Jesus is with them. I think of the song by Jeremy Camp. It says, he sings, and I'm not going to sing it because you guys would all leave, but it, it, it goes, I can walk down this dark and painful road. I can face every fear of the unknown. I can heal all God's children singing out, we will not be overtaken. We will not be overcome. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake, lives in us. And that power is the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm the raging sea, lives in us lives in us. He lives in us. Lives in us. May when we're in a trial, may we remember that. May we find hope in that. That that power, the Spirit of God, lives in us and is working in us to transform us and conform us into the image of Christ. Look with me at Revelation 2.9. It says, 
Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows you. He knows you. I know, he says. Jesus knows me. Say that with me. Jesus knows me. He knows me. He knows you. He knows your affliction. He knows your affliction. He knows your poverty. He knows your need. He knows it. <laughs> He's made you rich in faith. That's what he's referring to, but, but you are rich, he says. You're poor, but you are rich. You're physically poor. The church in Smyrna doesn't have much. Uh, in that sense, it doesn't necessarily apply to 90% of America, or actually more. But, but the poor in spirit are rich in faith. James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? What do we really value, right? He knows you've been slandered. Ever have somebody talk bad about you? I'm a pastor. I have all kinds of people talk bad about me. You ever had people talk bad about you? The hurt? Slander you. Say false things about you. He knows it. The Jews in this context are slandering Jews and Gentile Christians. This isn't anti-Semitism. <laughs> okay? Jews are slandering Jews. <laughs> okay? But they're slandering Christians. How are they slandering Christians? Well, it's interesting. So in about AD 90, which is when Revelation, uh, Revelation is written, is the course of Minim. And, and this was introduced in the 18-bit addictions. These are uh, a, a prayer that the Jewish uh, would read on their Saturday, on their service, in their synagogue. Okay? And this provided a means of detecting Christians in the synagogue. Because if this is the way it works, if you were uh, a Jew, then you didn't have to sacrifice to Caesar because you were an approved religion, okay? And you had dispensation. If you were a Christian, you had to sacrifice to Caesar because your religion wasn't recognized, right? And so for a long time, and Christianity it came out of Jews, the Ju Jewish faith, right? So for a long time, the Christianity was seen as a sect of the Jewish faith, right? Well, then the Jews were saying, no, <laughs> they're not us, right? And they made it really official by making this prayer that they prayed 
in the, in the synagogues to detect Christians. Uh, and, and they wanted to pressure uh, them out, and the pressure of the impure cult was pressuring them to stay in, right? That's why Christians were wanting to be accepted as part of a Jewish sect rather than just not Christian or just Christian. Does that make sense, right? It's a way to a loophole, right? So maybe I don't have to get persecuted. Well, the Jews are saying, no, I ain't having any of that, right? And this is what they write. The Nazarenes is referring to Christians. May the Nazarenes and the Minim suddenly perish, and may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled with the righteous. You have to pray that course in synagogue. And to them, it was not just wards. I want us to think about this. Because in reality, we all guilty at one point or another of slander. And it says, they're not Jews, they're of the synagogue of Satan. When one slanders, Right, go, did you lose the mouse? Yeah. Go higher. Uh, go to the other side. No, this, that way, other way, all the way across. Thank, there you go. You find it now? Okay. When one slanders, he or she aligns with Satan. When you slander somebody, you are aligning yourself with the enemy. Sobering. Not that you're like switching sides in the sense that you're no longer saved. That's not it. But you're playing his game. Who is he? He's the... He's the accuser. He's the slanderer. He's the father of lies. And so when we begin to speak ill and to slander people, we align with him. FYI, don't slander. Right? Try not to. Bite the tongue off. I know people can be really annoying. Revelation 2.10. I am running out of time. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Oh, I forgot to highlight that. Uh, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I forgot to highlight the beginning of that verse, do not fear. Do not fear. And that's the first thing we're going to talk about here. Do not fear suffering. 
fear God. And we're going to go back to what a section of what I read at the beginning of our, our worship here at, as a scripture reading. Back in Matthew 10, 24, says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and for the servant like his master. If they have called my master of the house of Beelzebub, which is an equivalency for Satan, how much more will they be? They malign those of his household. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear, because that is again, isn't it? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered, even mine, even though they fall out every day. And I keep losing more. They're all numbered. Fear not. See, there's that it again. Therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. We don't fear because we begin to trust in the character and value and intent of God. And really, we fear God, and that fear is not a fear of terror if we believe God, but a sense of reverence and awe and love for him. If we're lost, if we don't know God, then it's terror. We should be terrified. Trials test faith, which brings maturity. Satan, the devil, is going to throw them into prison to be tested. Trials test faith. Remember James 1, 2 through 4? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be mature or perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. They grow your faith. This is the perspective of hope. It's growing me. There's hope to this. This isn't pointless. It's not a dead end road. God is for me. Who can be against me? He's working it all for me. Hope in trials. I know Revelation is a book of symbolism and all numbers mean something. Yeah, well, not this time. Sorry. Maybe, but probably not. Ten. Why ten days of tribulation? What? Is it a literal ten days? Maybe. Probably not because... Polycarp is getting uh, burnt at the stake 75 years later, so I, I don't know uh, why 10 days. There is a couple things we can pull out on this. Uh, Genesis 24, 20, uh, 55 says, her brother and her mother, this is when um, 
Eleazar is going to go pick the wife for Isaac and bring him back, and he's trying to get her to leave with them, and they want her to stay longer. And, and so they're like, her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us for a while. So a while, at least, what's it say? Ten days. That she may, that after that, she may go. Daniel 1.12 says, test your servants for ten days, lest us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. So 14, he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. So, ten is probably is symbolizing a brief period of time. Could be ten days, literal days, it could be a brief period of time. It just is unclear in the text. But I want us to take this away. Trials are not forever. Right? Trials are not forever. I know, I know when you're in a trial, you think it's going to be forever. Right? Right? But it's not forever. Okay? Even churches who are persecuted have times of intense trial, right, intense persecution, and times of reprieve, right, right? It's not, everybody's got to sleep sometimes, right? Trials are not forever. And for us, death is not the end, but the beginning, right? So if the trial brings death into our lives, that is a way of escape. Not that we should go kill ourselves. That's not at all what I'm advocating for. Trials are not forever. Faithful unto death. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and then think of Hebrews chapter 11. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 speaks of faithful unto death. Because I know this phrase can be really intimidating. Because I know what we're asking ourselves. What if I'm not faithful? What if I can't do that? What if that just terrifies me? I, wanna, I just want to read this to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No trial has overtaken you that is not faced by others. First of all, Everybody face trials. And God is what, church? God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you are able to bear, but with the trial will also provide a way out so that you may be able to be faithful. Or endure. Who's got you? God's got you. He's faithful. When we're faithless, he's faithful. The one who is faithful to death will overcome. And I will give to him, next point, the crown of life. The crown of life. Now, there's two things this can be taken. Uh, it's uh, 
This crown is a, a prize that could be given at like the end of the Olympic Games. It's a, it's a weaved laurel that they wear, the winner wears, and he gets to strut around with a couple days with the crown on his head. And it could be meaning that, okay? I, it definitely means the resurrection, okay? That's the crown of life directly, okay? Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him, right? So it's just marrying that same language back in James, the crown of life with trials. So this crown of life in simple terms is the resurrection to life, okay? It's the resurrection to life. But I want to ask you this. Does the fear of God have anything to do with the crown of life? Remember, he says earlier in the passage, what? Fear not, right? And then we read back in Matthew 10, fear not again, but fear who? Fear God, right? Fear God. So I started doing some searching, and I searched through the Old Testament in the Hebrew and didn't find any language that really was like the crown language. So I decided to search in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and see what was there for crown. And it's very interesting. So we all know this verse very well. A lot of us do. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Right? Fear of God. The beginning of wisdom. Well, in the Septuagint, in the wisdom of Sirach, it says, the fear of Yahweh is glory and exaltation and gladness and a crown of rejoicing. Talking about the fear of God being a crown, right? Listen to this one, Sirach 118. The fear of the Lord is a crown of wisdom, making peace and perfect health to flourish. So John could either have been, well, probably was appealing to both the crown that they run in the Greek for winning the games, but he was also referring, I think, to this crown of the fear of God. So do not fear man, but fear God. The fear of God is terror for the lost. The fear of God is terror for the lost reverence and awe for the love, full of love for the saved, a crown of life. Reverence and awe, full of love for the saved, a crown of life. Think of John, 1 John 4, 15 through 19. Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God and God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love perfected is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as 
he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. No terror in love. That's what that is meaning there. But perfect love casts out terror, fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Revelation 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hear, hear Jesus' words spoken by the Spirit. Hear Take them to the heart. Act on them. We are more than conquerors in God's love. To the one who conquers, he will be spared the second death. He will not be judged, just like James, John, 1 John said. The one who, who fears is, is, is uh, ha- full of terror is one who is expecting judgment. But God's love, his perfect love, casts out all fear of judgment. We are conquerors in God's love, right? Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The second death. The second death is condemnation to hell, i.e., in the Bible, Gehenna and the lake of fire. Gehenna and the lake of fire. The eternal state of eternal punishment. Okay, it's really fine. So where is hope? Where is hope? And how do we process our trials? We find hope in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Processing our trials with him. We share in his suffering. And he knows you. He's with you in your trial. He knows you. He knows your affliction. He knows your poverty. He knows you've been slandered. He knows. And he's walking in it all. So fear him. For it brings the crown of life. The resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. And that brings hope. To our trials. Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you. We thank you for hope. We thank you for your work in trials. We thank you for the honor and the privilege that it is to suffer for your name's sake. And I know it's in various ways, and, and not everybody's suffering is the same. And may we not try to compare, but just seek 
one step at a time where we're at, keeping our eyes fixed on you, finding hope in your death and in your resurrection, in you being the first and the last, the, the, the hope bringer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.